Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Mary Shapiro began her career as a trial lawyer at the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, and President Clinton made her the CFTC chair. She was the CEO of FINRA, the largest non-governmental regulator of securities firms. She served as a commissioner at the SEC, and in 2009, President Obama appointed her to be the first woman to ever chair the SEC. During her four years leading the agency, which followed the 2008 financial crisis, the SEC pursued one of the busiest rulemaking agendas in its history. She joins me now for a closer look. At the annual banker conference at Jackson Hole, both Janet Yellen and Mario Draghi said that any rollback of post-crisis financial reforms should be modest because they've made the banking system so much stronger and more resilient. Do you agree with that, Rosie? take? I I think I do agree with um, Janet Yellen on that. There are undoubtedly things that can be done to fine-tune the vast regulatory infrastructure that was put in place post-crisis. But all in all, I think the reforms um, have served us well. There's more capital in the system. It's stronger. Institutions um, engage in stress testing and, and scenario analysis, have a better understanding of their own frailties and limitations. Regulators are certainly much more uh, familiar with what's happening in the largest financial institutions, and regulators are doing a much better job of sharing information with each other, which was a real problem during the crisis. So I think um, on balance, um, the reforms have served us very well, many of them, and um, and to make changes now might be appropriate, but ought to be done based on data and experience and uh, very thoughtfully and very carefully. Can you think of any part of Dodd-Frank that you, should, that you think should be changed or eliminated? Well, I think obviously I know best the, the rules that the Securities and Exchange Commission was required to do, and, and we had over 100 rulemakings to engage in post-Dodd-Frank, and, and I think a lot of those have been been very good. There are some areas where the federal securities laws were used, particularly in the areas of specialized disclosure, uh, to take the SEC in some new directions, and it's not at all clear to me that those will work out as everybody had hoped they would. Uh, But nonetheless, I think um, even for the SEC, with our large rulemaking agenda, a lot of what uh, has been done has been good, and, and particularly when you think about the area um, that was jointly owned by the SEC 
and the CFTC with respect to over-the-counter derivatives, but also rules around securitizations, uh, hedge fund registration, and, and oversight by the SEC for the first time. I think those are all important developments. Now, the controller of the currency wants public feedback on a proposal to roll back the Volcker rule. What would you say to him? I would say that any rollback ought to be done with extreme care. And while it's certainly always a good practice to get public feedback, hopefully balanced public feedback, not just from the regulated industry, but more broadly, um, and, and to take a look at that and do some analysis and understand um, fully, as best as regulators can, what the implications of a rollback would be. In the end, do you think that those rollbacks of Dodd-Frank will be modest? I do think they'll be modest because I think um, for a lot of the things that have, have been put in place and, and, and stood the test of the last several years, industry um, appreciates them in some cases, at least is comfortable with them, and operating in this new normal. And I think undoing some of those rules just actually creates more work with very little benefit. So I think we'll, I think the changes we'll see will be fairly modest. I've always had reservations about uh, groups that represent uh, somewhat competing uh, organizations. So that brings me to the Financial Stability Oversight Council. Has it worked as you had expected it to? I actually um, was an early fan of the Financial Stability Oversight Council for the, for this reason. During the financial crisis, there was not good coordination and information sharing among the regulators. And our markets are so complex, and we have such a highly fragmented regulatory system that for regulators to, to see a problem developing in the banking sector and not share that information, for example, with capital markets regulators, or for the CFTC to see something on the future side and not talk to the SEC about potential implications for the broker-dealer business, really was a recipe for uh, for disaster. And so I think the mechanism of creating the FSOC, if we weren't going to fundamentally reform the regulatory system, we needed some kind of a mechanism that would force regulators to take joint accountability for the stability of the financial system. And I think FSOC can work well to do that. I think one of the best things FSOC actually does that doesn't get as much attention as it should is the annual report on risks to the financial system that every agency contributes to and, it, and annually generating a report that really lays out what all the issues are that are um, coming down the road that regulators collectively need to be thinking about and worrying about. And I, I, I think that's a really important mechanism for us to have better informed regulators and a sense of shared accountability that if you see something wrong in your part of the markets, you need to share that with other regulators because you're all responsible ultimately for the health of the financial system. Mary, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau returned $12 billion to people who were victims of fraud, yet there continues to be hostility to this agency, particularly from the new administration. What do you think its future will be? Well, I, I think the CFPB has filled an important niche in the in the regulatory architecture and one that was not, not well covered before, which 
obviously was the motivation for its creation. I think that um, if, if I were going to guess, and I'm not very good at predicting what Congress will do, but I, if I were going to guess, I would say that they may change the structure of the CFPB in some way, perhaps going from a single uh, head to a, a five-person commission like the Securities and Exchange Commission or the CFTC has, and they may um, rein in some of its uh, authority. But I, I would be very surprised to see the uh, CFPB disappear completely from the regulatory universe. Now, a recent Treasury report suggested that uh, Secretary Mnuchin would like to substantially erode the requirement that banks finance their operations with more equity capital. Do you think that would be a wise step? Well, not. I don't have a great banking regulatory background, but I do think one of the things we learned from the crisis, and, and as you know well, Arthur, from your time at the SEC also, the capital is really critical to the stability of the financial system. And I think that anything that erodes um, the requirement for holding high-quality capital uh, has the potential to have um, unknown or unforeseen consequences down the road when um, when the economics are not so uh, rosy as they might be right now. So I think, again, it's one of those areas where um, we need to tread very lightly and very thoughtfully. Now, it's often mentioned that uh, thoughts of requiring banks to maintain a higher level, uh, as much as 10 percent of non-risk-weighted leverage, uh, is there merit to that number? Boy, I would not be a good person to judge um, what that number ought to be. Um, what I will say is that um, we need um, data uh, that and experience that supports um, making changes like that, I think, going forward. Now, shifting gears, are you as concerned as some members of Congress about the reduction in the number of U.S.-listed public companies, and why is this occurring? Well, I think um, there has been a reduction over the years in the number of, of listed companies in the U.S. I think we're at about 8,800 public companies, and I think at the time you and I served together at the SEC, we were, we were probably over 10,000, um, maybe closer to 15,000. So I think it, it's, it's somewhat concerning. Um, I, I don't, however, uh, blame regulation um, for the reduction in the number of public companies. I think perhaps the burdens of, of going public have made a difference for some companies. Um, but I think for the vast majority, there's been tremendous access to capital um, through um, other mechanisms than the public markets. A lot of uh, tech companies have chosen to uh, stay private longer um, in order to um, have a longer runway, less of the demands of quarterly reporting and, and the demands that, that public shareholders place on the company. And uh, I, I think there are, you know, we've had historically low interest rates for a long time now, so bank financing is much more affordable. So I think there are a number of factors contributing to the decline in the number of public companies. Regulation may play a small role in that, but but I don't think it's, it's the determinative factor by any means. I completely agree with you on that. I think it's uh, often used as an excuse for other things going on in the economy. Now, 
passively managed assets as a percentage of all managed assets have risen to 37%. And the number of market indices now exceeds the number of U.S. stocks. It looks like our markets are turning almost completely passive. Do you expect this to continue? And is there a danger in this that we haven't recognized? Well, I think it's an it's an interesting phenomenon, and um, and it's and it is a growing uh, percentage of assets under management that that have been indexed. I I will be surprised if the pendulum doesn't swing back a little bit at some point here, uh, as um, active strategies regain favor as as they undoubtedly will. Our markets are so cyclical, and investment behavior tends to be. Um, cyclical as well. So I, I will be surprised if if uh, we don't see a, a turn back uh, towards active management at some point. I think the expense ratio of passive funds is being more clearly understood by investors than ever before as a factor which leans against investment success. I don't really think we're going to turn back to actively managed funds except for very experienced uh, investors. That may well be right. Um, for, for I think, more experienced investors, um, you know, large endowments and large um, institutional investors may continue to pursue active strategies. Um, but I do think you're right that for the vast majority of retail investors, um, passive uh, strategies make a lot of sense, and, and companies like Vanguard have done a phenomenal job in keeping expenses very low and making those investments um, very desirable. Mary, I think because we both chaired the commission, we must talk about the SEC. Do you think that lawyers or academics make better commissioners? Oh, dear. <laughs> That's a dangerous question to answer. Um, I think, um, look, I think what makes a good commissioner, whether a lawyer or an academic, is somebody who um, will put the institution first above and, uh, above and in front of their own personal profile or, um, or uh, personal interests. I think it's somebody who will work very, very hard, um, respect the staff and the expertise of the staff, seeks lots of different views and perspectives before making a decision, and operates in the public interest. And that is without regard to politics, to ideology, to anything but a belief that our capital markets are one of the most important um, features of our of our um, of our country, of our democracy, of our economy, and their efforts have to go towards the protection of the integrity of the capital markets, really at every step of the way. And and the only other thing I'd add to that qualification is I think uh, just a a deep desire to serve the investing public and to remember that our markets um, exist for companies to raise money and individuals to be able to knowledgeably and intelligently make decisions about what companies to invest in. And um, that's what, to me, makes a good um, a good commissioner of the SEC, somebody who's collegial, committed to the public interest, and committed to the agency. Could the commission get along with 
three rather than four commissioners? Well, you're an expert on that, Arthur, because um, you had to, to work through a period of time where there were just two of you. Um, I actually think um, the agency can work well with with three. I think five is better. I'm a big believer in trying to bring a diversity of perspective, uh, perspectives and viewpoints to tackling any issue, and, and so five is good. I think the requirement that no three, more than three can be from the same political party is important. But when you have five people who have to make decisions, everybody has to come to the table with a willingness to compromise and work through the difficult issues. And um, if you don't have that, five is a recipe for stalemate. But, but if you do have people of goodwill anxious to do that, I think five um, can, can bring a really good perspective to the work of the agency. I think if I could have anything I want, I would want to have no commissioners and just a chair. <laughs> well, we all probably have harbored that secret dream as, as chairs of the agency because it would be easy to get things done. Um, but that's not how Congress set it up in their wisdom um, and uh, in 1934. And so um, you you work. You try to work with a majority. Obviously, you, we always, as I know you did, worked to try to be unanimous as much as we could. When you're making public policy that affects affects the entire uh, capital markets, you would like to do things unanimously if you can. But um, you know, at least getting those three three votes means you had to work through issues with that's your colleagues, true. and I always think that's good. Do you think the uh, commission and the CFTC will ever merge? Well, it's hard for me to imagine um, that they would. Um, I have, I've been on all sides of those, that issue, as you can imagine, having chaired both agencies. But during the Dodd-Frank debate, I, I very much supported merger of the SEC and the CFTC, particularly when we think about the fact that we had to contort ourselves a little bit in order to have two separate agencies take responsibility for a single market, the over-the-counter derivatives market. And it made for a lot of work um, the potential for conflicting regulations and requirements, the need to coordinate, difficulty coordinating with our international counterparts because there were two of us. I, I think it was um, there were compelling reasons in Dodd-Frank to merge the two agencies. I still think those exist, um, but it's, a, as you know, almost a purely political question, and so very hard to predict whether it will ever happen. Does the current process, Mary, of uh, choosing commissioners get the best people for the job, or are we likely to see more commissioners come from Capitol uh, Hill offices rather than from the accounting or legal or academic areas? Well, I think, you know, every White House um, selects its its nominees for these positions in a little bit different way. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't really know how this administration is choosing people. I think the new SEC chairman um, is, a, is a very solid, very strong um, head of the agency, and, and I think it was a very good choice. Um, obviously, he's got lots to do ahead of him, but, um, but, but I think um, represents an important kind of perspective and background for the position. Um, you know, as you and I have talked about, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a difficult process um, for people to go through. 
And um, But I also believe that when people get to the agency, something important happens, and they realize the enormity of the task they've undertaken and the importance of their work, the work they're going to do. And, and people tend to kind of buckle down and, and, and get serious about the work and take very seriously the fact that they're representing the public interest. What is this G20 climate-related disclosure task force concerned about it, and what is its goal? Sure. So this is a task force that was con- convened by the Financial Stability Board at the request of the G20, and which Mike Bloomberg has chaired. By the way, I should mention that Michael Bloomberg is the founder and majority holder of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg Radio. Um, that set out to um, create a framework for public company and financial institution disclosure of climate-related financial risk. Um, You think about the enormity of risk from climate change across different industries and sectors, it becomes very clear that it's important for institutional investors, banks, insurance underwriters, lenders, to understand what kinds of risks are being faced by companies from from climate change, whether it's the transition risk that we could have from a regulatory decree um, about reducing um, emissions or from a new development of a new technology, or it's the physical risk of climate change itself to, to a company's operations. And it's so it, uh, all industry task force was convened a year and a half ago to try to come up with a framework for disclosure of those risks in a way that it would allow the information to be used by institutional investors and others to make capital allocation decisions with a clear understanding of what the climate-related risks were to different companies. The task force developed four widely adoptable recommendations on climate-related financial disclosure that can work across sectors and across jurisdictions. And they're based around four themes that actually already represent the core elements of how organizations operate. So it's disclosure around governance of climate-related risks and opportunities, the strategy, what's the impact of climate-related risk on an organization's businesses, strategies, financial planning, the risk management processes that are used by organizations to identify, assess, and mitigate climate risk, and then metrics and targets that are used to assess and manage climate-related risk and opportunity. The report was... um, put together um, after wide consultation around the world by the 32-member task force and presented to the G20 uh, at the Hamburg um, leaders meeting. And now we're working through um, with companies um, implementation of the task force framework. When we launched the report, we had over 100 CEOs of global companies uh, endorse it and and sign up um, to support the recommendations. And so we're we're very hopeful that over time we will see something institutional investors have been demanding for quite a while, which is much improved disclosure by companies about the risks they face from climate change. Can we possibly hope for this in the face of an administration hostile to the concept of climate change? I think we can, um, and there are a couple of reasons for that. I mean, obviously, it would be easier if they would embrace the concept, but this is a market solution. This was done by industry for industry. 
Um, and so in the absence of official leadership in the U.S. on these issues, I, I look to three sources of, of leverage for this to happen. One is business will lead. I, I believe that. The task force itself was all industry. Um, businesses recon recognize that their employees are demanding that they be sensitive to climate change and work towards um, reduction of their impact on the environment. Customers are demanding it and shareholders are demanding it. I think secondly, state and local government actions um, will advance us in this direction um, very significantly. And thirdly, institutional investor demand. Um, if you look at um, some of the recent shareholder votes on proxy issues around disclosure of, of um, long-term portfolio impacts of climate change at places like Exxon and Occidental Petroleum, you can see that, that shareholders are demanding that this information be provided. And what the task force has done is given companies a mechanism for providing that disclosure in a way that actually makes it useful for, for uh, investors to use and compare companies across um, industries and within sectors and makes it cost efficient for companies um, to do that kind of disclosure. Without being legally binding, what percentage of such companies do you think will want to participate? Um, I think a high percentage will, and I think it will only increase over time. As I said, we launched the report with 100, you know, very large company uh, uh, signatories to it. Um, that list continues to grow. We're engaged now in outreach and, and implementation workshops with companies to help them get started on this this journey. It won't be perfect right from the beginning, um, but the framework is very much achievable and scalable. And I think one of the things we know for sure is that when one or two companies that are well regarded in a sector start to do something like this, other companies follow along. And as investors demand this information, this is an easy way for companies to satisfy those demands, um, which over time, it, you know, those demands will only increase as we see, um, as we're seeing right now, some of the physical impacts of climate change in, in Texas. So I, I think, um, I actually think business um, leadership on this issue w will continue to grow. Do you think the current process of choosing commissioners turn up the best qualified people for the job? You know, I think um, I think two things happen. One is that somebody may not appear to be um, going to be a great commissioner based on the paper or, or what you read about them in the press, and they can get to the agency and work very, very hard and be very thoughtful and turn out to do just a great job beyond what you ever expected. But I also think that um, it, public service is hard, and it gets harder and harder and harder. I've, you know, been in government for, um, you know, most of my career in and out under four different presidents, and I can tell you with each step it gets harder to serve as our political system becomes more and more polarized, and and you're trying to answer um, to, to Congress, which is highly divisive. And so I think... Um, I, it's it's just hard to serve the it's hard to serve and so that probably ends up washing some people out of the process who would be phenomenal members of of the Securities and Exchange Commission but just don't want to deal with the disclosure requirements the financial uh, 
disclosure requirements and the political environment. That's so true. I think that more than anything else, uh, getting someone to serve in an agency is so difficult because of the political environment, which today is more toxic than it was when you and I were there. So I think, I think that's uh, right. I, I do think um, the SEC has been pretty lucky. I think people still find that a desirable place to go work because the issues are so interesting and the staff is so talented and and the work is genuinely important to our country and to the to the well-being of, of hundreds of millions of Americans. So I, so I think the SEC has been kind of lucky in that regard, that it can still attract really terrific people. And I hope that will continue to be the case in the future, because the agency is only as strong as the people who are interpreting and enforcing the laws that it's, it's responsible for. She spent her entire career in government and private sector regulation as chair of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, CEO of FINRA, and as the first female chair of the SEC from 2009 to 2012. She's on the boards of General Electric and the London Stock Exchange Group. Mary Shapiro, thanks for joining us. By the way, if any of you have comments about the program or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.